Welcome to On the Soul's Terms, a podcast mining the rich soils of ancient stories in search of forgotten gold, and conversing with those on the edges of the known and unknown in the world of the healing arts. I'm your host, Chris Skidmore. Today I'm excited to bring to the show a friend of mine and a colleague, a fellow craniosacral therapist and an author, and her name is Natalia Rachel. A little bit about Natalia from her bio. Natalia shares her voice to begin to remedy the world's state of hustle, trauma, disconnect and disrespect. Her insights into the human condition and our profound need for healing, self-compassion, empathy and human connection inspire audiences to awaken their hearts illuminate their patterns and step forward towards self-care and relational repair. She's frequently called on to speak and facilitate workshops that inspire a proactive approach to healing and a collective shift towards peace and power. All her work highlights the undoubtable link between mind, body, spirit and relationships. Her topics include belonging, mental health, trauma and trauma-informed culture, boundaries, respect and power, empathy, compassion and vulnerability. All her talks blend concepts from science, psychology, interpersonal neurobiology, philosophy, and spirituality in an engaging, accessible format that includes conceptual learning, experiential process, story, self-inquiry, and self-care toolkit development. Her new book, or and her first book, was released only a few months ago, and it's called Why Am I Like This? Illuminating the Traumatized Self. So, Natalia, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for so much for coming on. Um, I thought we'd just sort of today just kind of jump in the deep end a little bit because you just had this book that's come out, um, Why Am I Like This? Illuminating the Traumatized Self. And that is a potent title if I've ever heard one. Um, so I wonder if we could start with just getting a sense of the process of this book, how this book came to be. And maybe through that, getting a little bit of your own story and and how you've come to sort of arrive in this moment of being an author. Why am I like this is 40 years of my life mm. still. And it traverses my experiences as a deeply traumatised little girl to a mentally unwell teen, a very physically unwell young woman, Um and then it also goes into my epic quest to heal mm. and study and learn all around the world through different modalities. It also includes my journey as a therapist and working in the field as a clinic administrator um, and, and everything I've learned along the way. And it culminates in the final part of the book called The Laws of Peace and Power, which is everything I believe I need to live by in order to create a life full of peace and power uh, and sovereignty and connectedness. And I think so many people resonate with that desire. So this is my map on how mm. I got there. Mm. Wow. Amazing. So much to, I just feel like there's so much to get into today. And so thank you for that introduction to your work. And I guess maybe it'd be good to tell the audience, you know, how we know each other. Um, and we've connected through both being craniosacral practitioners. And was it five years ago, would you say, that we met? 
Mm-hmm. Five years ago in Bali. In Bali, yeah. And so there's always been a sort of connection through the sort of work that we do, and a, um, and this this deep. I guess the quest is there um, at one side of it, and the and the healing component. You know, what does it mean to be in the in the healing arts, and what does it mean to be, um, you know, approaching people in their in their t- toughest, darkest times often, and and sort of putting your shingle out and having people come to you, you know? So there's been a lot of um, discussions over the years and we've sort of come in and out of each other's lives a little bit. Um, so it's really a, a pleasure to have you here uh, and thank you for agreeing to come onto the podcast. It is a pleasure. I'm really happy that we can connect now at this time in each of our journeys. Yeah, indeed. Maybe we can start with this final chapter in your book and and sort of do the Benjamin Button story and and work backwards from there. So illuminate this for me a little bit more, this uh, path of peace and power. What What does that mean to you? I think so many of us struggle living in this modern world, not only because of perhaps our past trauma and conditioning, but because of the the context of the modern world that we live in. Mm. So essentially it's really hard to exist here and feel a sense of well-being or sovereignty or interdependence. And I think because it's such a complicated time and place that we're living in, because of everything that we've learned and because of the conditions and dynamics around, it's really hard for us to create a life where we feel all as well. And so this last part of the book explores all the things that I believe we need to delve into and continue to explore you know it's a it's a journey not a destination to create lives for ourselves amidst the chaos and amidst the muck where we do feel like we are well like we're not living beyond our capacity like we're not at the mercy of other people or systems um, and like we are in relationship with people who truly value us and respect us but there's a lot of work to do to create that Mm. and so that last part of the book um, shares some of the things that I believe we need to tune into Um, and the first one is receptivity Um, and being able to start to listen beyond our trauma and Mm. beyond our bias and beyond our conditioning and so that is where we begin. Mm. Yeah and so I guess it's nice to to begin with that almost like as a vision. I mean, not necessarily a goal and a destination, but perhaps a vision. Uh, because as you write about in your book, you know, when you're traumatized and when you when you're in a trauma trauma experience, it's very difficult, isn't it, to see outside of that or to or to imagine even. You know, one of the things that gets shut down is the imagination, and to imagine that things could be different than this, that you could somehow be out of this looping or out of this kind of prison or cage experience. So nice to sort of like at the beginning to to bring in a vision of, of peace and power or sovereignty or receptivity or being able to feel, I guess, feel the world and um, perhaps even feel the safety of being in the world, which is which seems to be kind of constantly in question these days on a more macro level so it's hard for the individuals within this macro system to to get that sense of peace safety sovereignty receptivity um you know how how would you describe then the opposite of that you know that might take us back to the beginning of the book i suppose of you know the traumatized experience and and what that is like 
I always think it's important to give a definition, a point of departure for yeah. what trauma is because we all have different ones. So mm. my definition of trauma is when a past experience of threat that is over is living and breathing and it's now and it affects us mentally, emotionally, physically and relationally. Mm. Um, so it changes the way we perceive, express and relate. And a lot of us have trauma that remains unnamed and unknown because we don't know how to look at it and make sense of it. And so the beginning of the book is called The Existential Shift and it shares, uh, I guess it's the supposition or the hypothesis for the entire book, which says that in order for us to experience a world where we feel safe and like all is well and like we're connected and we belong, there are three key ingredients we need. One is safety. The second is belonging. And the third is the ability to show up and share and express authentically. And mm. if we don't have one, two or three of those things, we're going to experience this world in a very different way. Mm. And the truth is that most of us did not get access to all of those three things. Many of us didn't get even one of them. And that is a function of, you know, generations mm. of trauma cycling through. And so our generation mostly did grow up through some level of trauma and of course it's a spectrum and then I guess what is the remedy the remedy is in the root it is to go back and cultivate experiences of those very three things um, that we were not afforded and then the question is well how do we do that mm. and, and to be able to see and speak of it in these clear terms is a really good point of departure yeah how do we do that that's a that's often the I don't know about you but that's often the uh the initial question, which may not be a suitable initial question, but it's often what people want to know first, right? Okay, how? I think we're super obsessed with <laughs> frameworks and protocols and outcomes and destinations and yeah. timelines. Right. And all of these things block us mm. and they, they keep us really stuck. Um, and the first thing I always say is we need to come back to learning and listening and decoding the language of trauma and mm. once we can decode it then we can begin to respond to it so in essence all healing is is responsiveness empathy with more data points that's all it's actually simple and we make it very complicated because we want to roll out these you know very complicated but quick frameworks that mm. get somewhere when really we're already here we just need to come home to ourselves and listen yeah, indeed. Like we're trying to climb that mountain. We're trying to get we're trying to get there to that point. And that's I think that's the embedded that's the embedded mentality, I believe, anyway, in Western Western societies, right? We're given the the image of climbing the mountain and getting to the top of something or making more money or having more success or having that amazing relationship or all of these things that that is like that's that's how you do it. But it ends up leaving behind all of these these things or, or maybe even building on a foundation that is where the trauma is there, right? So building on shaky foundations and wondering why as I build something, it keeps crumbling. A bit like the story that we've been talking about that um, of Psyche and Eros it was in my last podcast of of the, the crumbling that happens when the break, when the split happens between Psyche and Eros. I think so many of the ways we have learned or been told to live and relate 
are just not fundamentally sustainable. And so yeah. that's where that crumbling goes. And it happens on a micro and a macro level. So our mental health, our physical health, our relationships all deteriorate. And then right now in the world, you can see um, businesses deteriorating. There mm. are layoffs going on all over the world. Mm. And that is because these fundamental systems and, you know, greater systems are simply following the blueprint of our internal system. Um, so the way we're showing up here doesn't work and what you're talking about i think is the the trauma of commerce and capitalism mm. and that is very real but we're too scared to talk about it because we're trapped in it and you never want to say bad things about your oppressor wow mm, good point <laughs> tell, tell me some more about that that feels juicy <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what more to say about it i just think you know, it's interesting. I'm sitting here in Singapore and you're sitting there in Bali, two yeah. very different systems. Yeah. And I've spoken to you before about how I'm a bit scared to consider moving to Bali because it's kind of like off the grid. Um, yeah. You're not dealing with the same commercial system mm. as a mainstream city like Singapore, London, New York, Sydney, you know, all these all these big cities that kind of say to you, if you want to make it here, if you want the right to live here and be here, you have to work damn hard mm. and if you don't we are going to chew you up and spit you out mm -hmm. uh, you don't actually have that in bali no, uh, true. So there's something very attractive about it um but to remain here there is this choice that has to happen again and again well these are the rules of this system or this city that i'm opting into uh and now i've got to play by them but often they come at a cost mm. yeah of course they do of course they do. And, and you know, I, I think it is the, like, what's the saying to, you know, the first step of healing is to have a firm grasp of the obvious or something like that. The first step to understanding to, is to get a fir firm grasp of the obvious. And I think there's like this obviousness to the way that um, Western society, Western capitalist society is set up is just so kind of kill or be killed, right? It, it's so sting or be stung that... um and that's so obviously there, that's so obviously true, but it's maybe so obvious that we don't really even know how to say it. It's like the water that we're swimming in, isn't it? That you kind of can't really speak to. One of the things that happens when we have trauma is that we immobilize within it and then we move into acceptance, which mm. is actually a form of apathy. And apathy says, this is how it is. It's just like that. Wow. The system's just like that. I'm just like this. And now I have to make it work within the confines of what is. And most of us live in this space. Mm. And then we convince ourselves, we fragment and we convince ourselves that that's not true, that we've chosen it. But often we haven't. We're just accepting. And I, I link this back to my story of physical illness you know i was sick for so long i was immobilized literally i couldn't walk um you know i was i was very ill for 11 years mm. and that was just my reality and i had to make the best of my life without the use of my feet sometimes without the use of my hands and i did but i smiled and i accepted and i just did what I could, but it was not until I moved into a state of non-acceptance that I could actually heal and transform my life. So to me, non-acceptance, which kind of challenges a lot of modern interpretations of spirituality, yeah. says, no, I'm setting a big-ass boundary with myself 
and the world that says, I don't subscribe to this anymore. And when we move into non-acceptance and set that boundary, stuff falls apart. Mm. So you were talking about that disintegrating. So there's either disintegrating or exploding or a whole mess of everything. And we end up in the rubble of it all, vulnerable and terrified, but it's from there that we often can go on to recreate something new. Wow, you're really speaking some truth here. It's really good to to hear that. I mean, it, like it's you've put your you've put some words to something in that in that sentence that you or that paragraph that you just gave me. That is like, yeah, it's kind of like that's the the non acceptance. It's something that I really feel. I feel a truth in what you're saying here. Almost like we've taken on some of the beliefs of we've sort of taken some. I don't know. Like, you know, part of my mission with the podcast is sort of to go back, you know, to go back through Western history and find times when we knew much more than we did now about spirituality, about soul, about um, how to live with this planet, in this planet, as this planet. And um, and so a lot of those things that I discover through even Greek mythology and before before that helps me to see these kind of like deeper layers. But of course... Um, most of our generation sort of come, came up with maybe in religion or out of religion, but it was one of the, it was pretty much usually Christianity. It was usually an organized religion and found that it didn't quite give uh, enough. Or So then there was a leap over to the East. And of course, we're tourists in the East, you know, so we pick up messages like acceptance. And I think what you're speaking to is like accepting an oppressive system is pretty much the worst thing that you can do. And it's really nice to hear you kind of articulate that so clearly for me and the audience here. Thank you for that. Thank you. There's two things I want to reflect on what you just said. Um, one is that most spiritual teachings have been altered and morphed and changed again through generations of human. Yeah. Um, so when we listen to a teaching, there's always going to be that person or that lineage's lens and something I'm really passionate about is trying to take off all of these layers of bias and meaning that someone else has given and find them for myself. And another piece there is that I think understanding the difference between religion and spirituality is so important, or it is for me. Um, I feel like we are born into religion, but spirituality is something we choose and claim. So it is a much more empowered process rather than a passive one. Mm. And again, every time we move into an empowered process where our agency and our choice are at play, we are healing. Mm. Uh, healing is an active process. Yeah, and I feel like extending that a little bit, that that even that choice may be to go into one of the big organized religions and that could be an empowering process and then you discover the beauty of those, you know, so I don't want to make it sound as though these big organized religions are bad. That's not what I'm saying here. But certainly being a passive, um, I, I guess, a, a passenger in that system yeah. is just dangerous because you, you're taking it in wholesale. You know, you're taking all so of the things in one. The fundamental choice to engage is what keeps us mm. empowered and alive and present and in control of our lives. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's come back to safety, belonging, and the, what is the third one again? Authentic expression. Authentic expression. 
I wonder if we could spend a little bit of time on each of these um, because they each feel quite potent and, and rich. Should we start with safety? Sure. So ideally, when we're born, what would happen is that we come out of our mother's body and we go onto her chest or her belly. And it's through that connection, that somatic nonverbal connection that we ideally will learn, I am safe here Mm. and I am not alone. And although this world feels very scary, there is someone here that's going to show me the ropes. And so I guess there's safety and belonging together to start with, right? And ideally, as we grow up, it should be our connection with our parents and our family and our community and our inner circle that continue to provide us experiences of safety. And safety doesn't mean not going through difficult experiences. It means being responded to uh, and connected and cared for through and beyond difficult experiences. So many of us that grew up in volatile homes or oppressive cultures or through experiences of violence and oppression did not have access to safety. And what happens then if we don't have that is that our nervous systems develop from an origin of and as a response to threat. So we have no map for safety. There's nowhere to return to. There's no recognition of what it's like. And so we experience primarily through the lens of threat. Um, And if that happens, it's really hard to start experiencing people um, and places and opportunities and the world at large as a safe place to be. And so that's why many of us exist primarily in survival mode and find it so hard to get out of it because ideally there should be this baseline, this home or resting state that we can come back to. And if we weren't shown it, if it wasn't cultivated through those reflective dynamics, we actually don't have access to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, and then because, yeah, I think there can be some confusion about the word sometimes. And just then as you were speaking, I was thinking about safety as like the ability to take risks, you know. There's something about safety and risk because it's it's actually knowing that I can go out. I mean, it, that even comes back to the Winnicott stuff, right, like the attachment theory things, like the ability to leave mother behind and then know that I can come back. And then slowly as I go out into the world, it's like here's another layer of society and, and of things beyond my home. And then I come back and I'm okay and, and sort of the slow bridging between the world and the home or the um, external to mother and mother, I suppose we could say. Yeah, I think there is a huge link between safety and risk. And ideally, the safer we are, the greater risk we can take. And what happens when we don't have that safety? In the book, I write quite a bit about we will go in one of two directions um, regarding our dysfunction. So it will decontextualize in many diffuse ways, but generally in one of two directions. Either we will prove or disprove our dysfunction. So if there is no safety uh, when it comes to risk, either we will take crazy risks. Mm. And this happens to a lot of people and they'll put themselves in really dangerous situations. And then the the trauma begins to roll um, and become really rampant in one's life. And that absolutely happened to me. And then on the other side, there will be this freezing and inability to take any risk. 
And this would present more as, you know, not wanting to try new things, not wanting to leave the house, not wanting to commit to a relationship or fly to another country. So however it, however it decontextualizes, usually it's going to be either to prove it or to disprove it. Mm. And one of the parts of our healing is to understand, well, which direction did my trauma manifestation take <laughs> and what do I need to do in order to, I guess, repair the paradox because in both cases, all we're seeking is safety. But what trauma does is it creates these paradoxes where we recreate the experiences of trauma and move further away from what it is that we truly seek. Right. And then I imagine the further you go in that direction, the less, even less context you have for safety, or the further that you go in the safety direction, even less context you have for life and, and risk, you know, like what is happening in the world. Right, you start to get less and less of a clue and especially these days where you can look you're wondering what's happening in the world and you can stay in the safety of your home and look in the internet and get a very distorted view particularly because of the way the algorithms work a very distorted view of what's actually happening in the world the more our trauma decontextualizes the longer that we suppress it and the more we go in those directions towards recreating it the more complex and mm. diffuse it becomes, the harder it becomes to spot what's going on um, and to decode it and to heal. But I do think it's possible. It just takes that really deep listening. Yeah. I mean, I'm drawn to sort of come back to this 11 years and you could barely walk, sometimes not feel your hands. Is there a, is there a sense of, can you give us a bit of a context of what that condition was, what, what that and and where your relationship to this first part safety was um during that time was it just kind of exiled somewhere would you, do you get a sense now that you're in a healthy place of what it was like back then i am still healing from that is my mm. honest answer okay. I, I have a lot of medical trauma so still i went to the doctor last week for a routine health check and i get so anxious and then after I go and everything's fine, I just need to cry and shake. So I'm still healing. Mm, wow. um, pretty horrific. And I am I have a lot of compassion for myself as I do that. And I might always be healing because of how bad it was. Mm. I think um, the initial physical symptoms for me started in my gut. And so all of a sudden, one day, my gut just shut down. And I couldn't keep any food or water down. And I passed out and ended up in hospital with this strange rash on my stomach and just exhausted. And they couldn't figure out what it was. Um, so they were doing all the tests and they couldn't really figure it out. And I couldn't eat. And after two weeks in hospital, they sent me off and said, you know, you'll just have to live like this. And um, so I went back to work 10 kilos lighter. And something really important to share is that happened right after things had started to go well in my life. So there was safety. Wow. And so I'd, I'd had this awful experience with my mental health, which I don't know if we'll come back and explore. Let's see. But I've got through that. I met my husband. Uh, he was my boyfriend then. And we've got a really great place to live, a great partner. We've both got really good jobs. I had a really supportive boss for the first time ever after so many years of chaos. Mm. And it was within that safety that my body started to break down. It's a bit like, you know, when you've been working hard all year and then you go on holiday and all of a sudden you get a cold. Right, or of course. Like that. It's like that, but on this much, yeah. much level. So the safety allowed authenticity to emerge. 
So safety doesn't necessarily make us all calm and zen-like. It promotes truth to come. Mm. That is the essence of safety. Uh, it's a bit like in a relationship um, when you feel safe with someone, that's when all your funky shit starts to come up, excuse <laughs> my language, because there's yeah. that safety. Mm-hmm. Um, so within the safety, that's when the physical symptoms started. And so I went back to work just trying to manage it. And I would eat like two teaspoons of soy custard Oof. and some cucumber without the skin. And that's all I could manage. And then I'd throw it up and get back to work. And that was what was going on. And about a month later, I was sitting at my desk and my right foot just dropped And I couldn't feel it or move it. And I was freaked out. I was terrified. And I went to the hospital and they did nerve conduction studies. And they said, you've got nerve damage in your right leg and you'll never walk again. Wow. And so as a 24-year-old, hearing that was incredibly distressing. And I was on my own there. So there's a huge theme of aloneness for me through my years of illness. And I've always had a super strong spirit. So I was like, that is not going to be my story. Non-acceptance. Mm-hmm. Seed of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's when I found craniosacral therapy. So I went to find a physio who just happened to be a cranio. And over the course of 11 years, he would just hold me. Um, and he was a source of co-regulation and calm. And we didn't go into deep transformative work because I don't think that was his space, nor would I have been ready. But that presence and connection and safety would allow me to feel a little less distressed a little less afraid for moments or days sometimes and I guess over time I I did walk again but every once in a while one of my legs would just stop working and then maybe it would begin again maybe it wouldn't I had my leg in a brace I would limp around um, and then pain started so I got all this strange pain And the sentiments of the doctors were, we can't find a diagnosis for what's going on. We're going to do every test under the sun. And here's a bunch bunch of Oxycontin and Endone. And here is some Lyrica, which is another, I guess, nerve suppressant. And then the medication just started piling. Um, And so my physical health got worse and worse. And my mental health got worse and worse. And I think I ended up becoming so dissociated Um, that all I knew was I need to survive and these are the ways that I can do it. And so I stopped working for a company. I started working for myself and I would work in the few hours of the day when I could and then I would pass out. I was having migraines, stomach issues, bruises all over my legs. Um, Then it moved to my hands and arms. So there would be bruises and my hands in a splint. So, you know, it was pretty severe. And there would be times where I would be terrified. So I would remember coming home from the doctors and I would be in my bedroom on my own. And it would only be on my own where I would allow myself any emotion at all, Um, which is another common thing I've learned for those of us with trauma that um, are holding on to so much. And I would weep in my bed, um, fear, grief, confusion. And then I would suck it down after a few minutes and get up and continue. So I think I was completely devoid of any sense of safety. And anytime I would share myself with a doctor, I had to be careful because they would either give me more drugs or they would send me to a psychiatrist. Mm. Um, They would tell me, and after a while they said, we don't know what's going on with you and it's degenerative and probably you're going to be dead before you're 40. So that was the messaging that I had. Um, And I believed that. 
and I believed, well, this is this is it for me. Um, and it was pretty awful, to be honest. And I, I don't really know the point when safety began to arise. I think it was after when my son was six months old, I my body totally shut down. So I couldn't move either leg. I was screaming in pain and I ended up in the hospital for two months. And by that time, I'd already been on intravenous treatments for seven years. Um, and they gave me ketamine. Um, wow. which is basically like medical grade horse tranquilizer, like serious torture. Um, but through the torturous experience, it was really very scary. Um, I then had a near-death experience. And when I left myself, it was like I was witnessing my children's lives without me. So all these flashes of their life without me. And so there was something inside that said, uh-uh, that is not happening. And mm. so that pulled me back to my body. Um, and so then I remember laying there for hours, not able to move. And I finally blinked them open and I pressed the buzzer and the nurse came in and I said, and I don't know where it came from. I said, get me a counselor, get me a wheelchair. I need to go outside. And so there was that agency and that choice. Mm. And I think that clinging onto that for the first time promoted a sense of safety. And then what happened next was that I started working with a shaman and she was one of those humans that we've talked about before that was a catalyst for me and a resource for me to help me learn that safety is available and healing is available. And then the healing journey began from there. Wow. Amazing. I'm I'm brought to just before we got on air, we were talking about this Psyche and Eros story and the moment that Psyche throws herself into the river, you know, there's the there's the rubble and the sort of suicidal um or the end of it's all over kind of experience, which could come through suicidal tendencies and thoughts, or it could come from um, you know, this near death experience. It's sort of the throwing into the river moment and then the river doesn't accept the river says no. Right, and then Psyche gets washed up at the shore, and Pan is there, the hybrid creature, and it's sort of like that. The shaman may be playing the role of Pan there, and in the story, many more magical creatures, as we've sort of talked about um, before coming onto this podcast, talking about that the importance of the magical helpers that show up just at the right time, in the right moment, and in the right way, um, and with the right tools, which is kind of the grace of it all, isn't it? Because uh, amongst all of this trauma talk there's often i don't know if you've found this but i find it often gets couched in very neuro um neurological language very scientific language it sort of like tracks itself back to the western medical model which is like yeah there's problems with that model it has its benefits too but there's some problems like this whereas so much of the trauma experience i think or the or the healing happens through a little bit more of these um i don't know moments of grace or or meeting of the of the pan figure meeting of the shaman meeting of the healer some or even meeting that inside of yourself or as you say agency these kinds of things that get left out of the conversation when it's like doctor will give you this and then you'll heal i totally agree i think so many of us who have gone through a lot of trauma have hit those rock bottom moments mm. where we you know, for me, it was a very physical experience, but for many, it's this mental health experience of I can't go on in this world. Mm. And 
I still go to places like that, you know, mm. and so do a lot of people, but they don't talk about it. And something I say to people that I'm working with who have those regularly is there's that is a part of you. There is a part of you that can't go on. But the fact that you're here, there is this part of you that wants to be here, that so strongly wants to be here. And it's often that part that is doing all these crazy, weird, protective things just to keep you here, just to make it more bearable. But if we can continue to connect to that part or piece of you that wants to be here, uh, and if we can, um, you know, that that is your the essence of your life force. Our life force wants to exist. Mm. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking back to craniosacral now, right? It just wants to flow and evolve. Mm. So if we can tap in to that piece of you that wishes to be here um, and grow that, and allow that to flourish through relationship, uh, that's where the healing is available. So it's not necessarily scientific and it doesn't really connect to any framework. This is just about a human existential and dynamic experience. But I think underneath everything, most of us have this innate will to live, mm. even if there's a part of us that that is telling us that we don't. Mm. Yeah, and isn't that a magical moment when you feel that in craniosacral feel that in yourself and or feel that in another and it's very palpable moment when suddenly you tap back into the wellspring right like the actual i guess that's what i would call eros which is why i think the story of psyche and eros and the split between the two is a very important story because it's the discovery not of something sexual because that's just a, a modern interpretation and sure there's an element of that in eros too but it's just life force right so it can often feel like oh and and the emotional kind of potency of that experience when it does happen on the table or I mean anywhere in life ultimately, but we I guess we get to be there, you and I, in those moments when it when it happens and and that's a real gift to us. I I agree. To feel not only someone's life force, but the interconnectivity of us all is very wonderful and powerful. Mm. And I think so many of us uncon unconsciously know that is what we need. And I think that's why so many people are seeking out somatic work more and more because there's this inherent knowing I need a nonverbal, intentional, helpful connection with someone. And that's a really good way that it manifests. But for many of us, that desire, that unconscious desire to connect and grow our life force uh, and belong through that connection takes us into really unhealthy situations too. Mm. And I think this is something really important that there are more and more conversations. So a lot of our dysfunctional behavior is an unconscious attempt to seek life-giving connection. Mm. Beautifully said. And I think that probably takes us into this belonging sort of phase too, because that is that, right? I mean, that is a, it's not necessarily that we want to feel I mean, it is, it's a reflection of what we want to feel internally, but it's in relation because we're, we are relational beings. I guess the complexity of codependence, hyper-independence, you know, and this kind of like interdependence thing, it's, you can say the words, but the actual discovery of that is, is, um, is quite a complex journey, is it not? It's really complicated. In simplest terms, we are built to belong. We are built to live and grow and heal and thrive and evolve in dynamic. Mm. And if we do not have dynamics available that offer those things, we will never feel like all is well, even if we pretend. And so many of us 
we'll pretend that we're fine without it, mm. um, but we're not. Um, and so it's interesting the whole the whole conversation around not not being um, or needing to be independent or not being needy. Actually, we need each other. We need validation. We need collaboration. And so I want to bring a lot more compassion to that conversation because there's a lot out there, particularly in the world of self-help and business that says you got to be able to do it alone mm-hmm. um, you know, and you should never rely on anyone else. And that actually just overrides our fundamental human principles um, of what it is to live here. And I think because that messaging is going out, um, so many of us then shame ourselves for not being able to live that way or feeling a sense of pain living that way. So a lot of us try and then we just feel this terrible ache um, or void is a common word that's used. And what we're craving is this community. And I guess then there's this other piece in there that when that remains unconscious, we will often seek it out in really destructive ways. So a big part of healing is learning to create experiences of belonging that are healthy. And again, if we haven't had a map for that, if our family and our community have have shown us that love and connection are shameful or full of harm or full of exclusion or full of abandonment or pain, we won't know how to make anything different. And so we need to learn what that looks like. Um, And it's interesting if we look at relationships right now and sort of the trends in relationships, there's trends of conscious relationship, which is all about trying to create those experiences for each other. Um, And again, I think we need to continue to be careful to look at, well, where is that line between healthy relating and recreating a different version of the same thing, of the Mm. same dysfunction? And I'm super interested in that space. Mm. Tell me more about that. I mean, you see or I see there's all these woke relationship experts that are talking about conscious relationships and the conscious man and the conscious woman. And when you learn to love well, you know, you will be in the promised land and everything (laughs) will be wonderful. Um, And often these people are pretty young as well. Uh I've I've been around the block a few times. I I was in a 17-year marriage and gone through a beautiful conscious divorce. So I guess I have a different take on it all. Um, but I just think there's something in there still around recreating attachment dynamics, it's like trying to recreate these perfect relationships that didn't exist. And if we can do that, and if we can withstand all of the triggers and the pain and sit with it, then everything will be better. And I, I see that there's a need for this, particularly for our generation, because we're trying to give ourselves what was lost. I just am unsure. And, you know, it remains to be seen if that is a long-term solution or just another another way we're trying to um, soothe ourselves. <laughs> and so I'm interested to see what happens in the next 10, 15 years. Are we still trying to be so work and be so hypervigilant about holding this space for each other's healing or will something different emerge? So, for example, my children have had experiences of those three things they have safety they have belonging and they are the most authentic little humans i've ever met it makes me cry regularly i'm like wow you're just really you that's mm. fucking beautiful um and 
I don't think they're going to need to enter into relationships where they're processing all the time. Mm. And so I just think that that is the next wave of relationship. And so I see how conscious relationship, I'm doing my little inverted commas, um, is needed at this time. But I do think it is a stage. We're all in stages, aren't we? Yeah, and I like that there's this sense of it often quite young, yes. So therefore, often often bringing forth an ideal, and and you know you read enough mythology and you see those stories and you see how they happen, how they how they work out or how they don't work out. You know, sometimes I wonder if it's the longing to re-enter Eden in a sense, or to sort of put back the the um, apple of of knowledge, right, like back on the tree of knowledge, and sort of like come back to this, even though it's conscious is the word, ironically enough, but often it's quite an unconscious desire that's going on there. And as you say, like something that people don't really have a base level um, experience of to go back to or to experience, and so then they're going back to a, so yeah, there's a fantasy uh, component to it. Yeah, I was going to use the word game. It's a game, it's a, a game. simulation. Simulation. Um, mm. And I think it's just another one. And I, it, and again, this isn't to shame at all because I see the purpose and I see where it comes from and I've got such love and compassion for everyone that's just trying to create experiences of belonging for themselves. Um, and I think we've got to be careful about using that word conscious because we all have unconscious. We well, are yeah. never fully conscious. Um and so when we step back and can look at the origins of what we're creating, again, it's not about saying this is wrong. It's just about being so much more aware because then we can look out for when perhaps it goes in the other direction mm. um, and look out for perhaps the recreation of the same old things because I see something that happens when we're not aware of these things in the case of trauma. And this isn't just about relationships. This is about life in general we think we're on a good track and we think we found the path and the way. And then all of a sudden we're down some similar rabbit hole or off in some horrible dungeon. How did we get here? Mm. How did it happen? How did I waste seven years of my life? You know, this kind of thing. So I just think it's always great to be um, inquiring. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the calls there is for a better and more thorough and more well-rounded psychology, to be honest. You know, like I do think um, psyche is at the heart of a lot of that because if we had a better, more well-rounded psychology that involves, you know, to me, more of the mythic and more of the, these elements of like, oh, I can read I can read about the gods going through those experiences, you know, and then and the tragedy of that, the old Greek plays, right? And then when I read the tragedy, I can say, okay, I know, a few options for that. A tragedy, an old Greek tragedy is like a dream, but it's a collective dream. And then I can enter the dream and think like, well, would I want to have that experience? Or what I, What else is available for me down that path? And then look through a few others. Um, but again, we're sort of being cut off also from mythology and also from what I would call quality psychology, you know? And so a lot of that um, ends up, as you say, coming through the unconscious and... I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm certainly not coming from judgment because I experienced it myself in my own um, dalliance, I suppose, with marriage and open marriage and all of those things. And I, I really did feel, and this is where I can speak to a very personal layer of it, I really did feel like I was onto something and that it was real and that this was the answer and this was the way. And I even remember sitting with the celebrant 
who was going to marry me and my partner at the time. And she was drawn into it. She was like, wow, you guys are so evolved and everything. And the whole thing turned turned on like the dragon suddenly turns around and, you know, the, the suddenly you get the other side, right? The fantasy of how blissful it's all going to be. And as you say, suddenly you find yourself in the dungeon and you're like, surely this wasn't the path to a dungeon. You know, I was sure I was heading up to those beautiful clouds and the mountaintop and the peak experience and staying in bliss. Um, but no. Uh, yeah, I think we just... Something that's been an important learning for me recently is that everything is a stage mm. uh, and there will always be evolution. Mm. And with the welcoming of evolution um, and stages, there is always loss and there is always letting go and there is always grieving and there is always recreating. Um, and I think as I continue to realign myself again and again with that, I find a lot more peace and fluidity in welcoming new versions of myself, mm. in welcoming different forms of relationships. So example, for example, my ex-husband and I were amazing co-parents. He's still one of the biggest supports in my life, but we are not married and we are not in a romantic dynamic. Um, and that has come through being in this evolutionary state. And I know that some people will have all kinds of bias and judgment around these kinds of things. And if you commit to a relationship, you've got to stay the long haul and la, 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 la. But I just, that doesn't work for me. Yeah, indeed. And I like that you're opening it up to like, even on the collective and the personal and the individual, there's, it's a phase. Woke conscious relating is a phase, right? And, and, and in some ways better to go all the way through that folly, um, you know, and, and, props to those out there going all the way through that folly and uh, and experiencing that and may they come back with some really authentic as as the word you're using here uh reflections for us of not just why it was so amazing but also why it really sucked you know like where it was really painful and i think that that um genuine sharing is something that we're really longing for as well which gets all a little bit um confused out in the world of show your best self right like out in the out in this very very new technology of having your own publishing company uh, everybody has their own um you know publisher <laughs> of your own life yeah, and so you can write that story how you want and that comes back to number three right right um so most of us have lost authenticity and social media does not help. No. And the construct of the modern world does not help. Mm. Um, and in the end, all any of us want is to find a safe place, a safe people, or one safe human, just to be able to take off all of the armor and and turn off all of the protective mechanisms and survival strategies just, and say, here I am, please accept me. Mm. And it's so interesting that you use these terminologies because I'm thinking in the last one, belonging, the message is the the hero story, right? Like, uh, get that armor on. You you've got everything that you need. You're the best. Go out and be the best, and you don't need anyone. And forget what anybody says to you. And it's like, woof. I don't know. We do need each other. So that that point there, and then in this authentic expression, yeah, how to how to begin. Uh, de-armoring and dismantling of armor in order that your voice might resonate and resound with what's really there. It's a journey and it links back to safety. So the mm. safety, more safe we become, 
the more we can step into authenticity. And then it's through those that belonging comes. So I think they work, you know, together in tandem. Right. And I mean, I guess there's a meta perspective here on the, even writing a book and putting it out there in the world and some of your experiences of that. I mean, you must be in this like oof, the uh, the heat of authentic expression right at this moment, I imagine. Just before the book came out, a week before, I went into such a fear state mm. and I nearly wrote to Penguin Random House and said, you can't, you can't put it out, cancel, cancel. <laughs> and of course I didn't. It was such a physical experience. I'm a real somatic human, so mm. I feel everything in my body and I was terrified. And so then the book came out and nothing bad happened. So I proved to myself that I'm welcome in the world and that was massive. And with that experience, I dropped into really major processing of grief of not having felt safe in the world of not having felt welcome to be my authentic self in the world um and so it's been a pretty profound process and interestingly you know 99% of the feedback of the book has been so positive and welcoming and affirming and validating but there have been a few really awful hate mails that have been sent to me mm. And I think that's just part of it. Um, but the the safer I am sharing myself with the world and the more support there is, the more resilience I have to deal with those awful forces in the world. And I think another big piece of our personal healing and growth, which again, I'm still working on, is realizing there are some really mean, bad, awful people in the world. And there mm. are people that do want to hurt. And of course, that comes from their own their own trauma and their own dysfunction but gosh, isn't that sad? So I continue to grieve that. Mm. Yeah, it's, it brings me back to that image that we had of the of set back to safety, right? Because safety isn't a case of making sure the world is wrapped that you're wrapped in cotton wool and there's there's nothing bad in the world. I mean, that's the that's a naive innocence, right? And and we kind of this is a fairy tale theme where we begin with the naive innocence. Something happens. You know, let's take a really simple one like Little Red Riding Hood. She leaves her head, her, her she leaves her head apparently, but she leaves her house with a Little Red Riding Hood, and she wanders out into the forest, going to grandmother's house, which all sounds very, um, you know, very innocent. And then she meets the wolf, right? So we've got to be able to kind of know that there are wolves in the world, but part of that is to be safe and then extend that safety out right to be safe and then extend that safety out but it sounds like you got yourself into a place where you were ready on some soul level at least to take on a big um what like risk of your safety maybe is that how you would see it yeah absolutely it was a big risk to put the book out there and yeah. it's a risk every time i share what i believe um I'm pretty active on LinkedIn uh, and my what I speak of often challenges societal norms mm. and it challenges the voice of oppression. Mm. Um, and so every time I do, not every time, but sometimes when I say something particularly poignant, I still get that fear response. Um, but, you know, you speak to naivety and I think something that's true for me and many of us that have unresolved trauma is that during those traumatic experiences, particularly if they happen when we're young, these young parts of us freeze and so they don't develop. Mm. And it means we hold these parts 
that do have naivety and that are more prone to being harmed or putting ourselves in harm way or trusting when we shouldn't trust. And so as we begin to heal and get in touch with those parts of us that have frozen back at those times of the trauma, we have to welcome them to grow up. And so the naivety then evolves into beautiful wisdom. And that is a process of itself. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. I always come back to putting that, putting that child together with your inner elder feels like a really important move because I mean, who else is going to be with that child and help, help that child to, to express and to grow. And also I would add to that, not to insist upon that child becoming something else as well, right? Like there is something of the, of just kind of in that thawing out process, letting the child be child, letting the child go through what it needs to go through and um, kind of come back to the enjoyment and the, and some of that elements, the elements, I, I, I think the distinction is between innocence and naivety. You know, like the innocence is, I think, certainly shows up a lot in myth of, um, of once the, like that return, de-armoring is actually coming back to innocence. But the difference being that, you know, it doesn't have that same naive sort of full um, thing, you know, or the, or the thing that actually is more moth to a flame, isn't it, when we really break it down? It's not just naivety. It's actually the seeking out of dangerous situations, like the seeking out of, of the trauma again, right? The seeking out of repatterning. Mm. I love what you just said. It makes me think of the phrase, innocence can also be wise. Like they go, they can go together. Right. You know, naivety and wisdom don't go together, but innocence yeah. um, and wisdom can. And the other word that strongly comes to me, which I use a lot, is purity. Um, so it's nice to hear that there's they're, they're like a synonym now for me mm. because of this conversation between innocence and purity. So a lot of my journey has try been about trying to find the purest expression of myself without all the trauma, without all the bias, um, without all the noise of the world, gosh, the world is noisy. And so mm. I love now all of a sudden this placing together mm. of purity and innocence. Mm. I like that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I wonder if you can take us back because maybe we're moving into the last phase here of our discussion. And I feel like we've left you here and you've just met this shaman. And I'm wondering if you can help me help me and help us to sort of hear because I mean it sounds like you're in the doldrums you it sounds like you're in about as as far down as one could get um when that happened and and having only just been through what feels like a dissociative state or perhaps near death or whatever the soul may be getting ready to leave this life so what was the can, what can you share and I don't expect you to share what you can't share right because some of that remains in the sacred container but what can you share with us about that Gosh there's so much it's more about time isn't it mm. She showed me how to be with my body while I was in pain that's one thing that she did through body work and she mm. also um did some past life regression work with me and she also gave me self-care tools and homework. And it was actually those things that really allowed a change to integrate. So one of the homeworks that she gave me was to lay on the ground and connect to the heartbeat of the earth. Hmm. And I talk about this a lot because I was 
trapped in myself, in my aloneness, with no access to higher power or external resource. And this is common with trauma. And there were no people around me regularly in my life to offer me their capacity because that's not the kind of people that were in my life at that time, though it is now, which is pretty beautiful. Mm. Um, and so she suggested for me to connect to the heartbeat of the earth. And so I thought that was ridiculous. <laughs> you know, I, I, this was before my my sort of slide into exploring my own spirituality. And I just thought, this is stupid, but I'm going to try because I'm desperate and I do trust this woman. And so I tried a few times and I couldn't do it. And I felt shame mm. and more alone than ever. But on about the third time, boom, 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 there was the heartbeat of the earth. And then that triggered a pretty profound release experience of grief um, but also some sense of trust and resonance. Um, and so there weren't too many other changes apart from that at that time, but there was this ignition of that life force hmm. uh, and that belief, that hope that things could be different. It was palpable, it was felt. And so I started to look after myself with a little more reverence, but I was still very sick. And it wasn't until I moved to Singapore that I actually somatized. And so somatized, we know, means coming home to the body to be present with what is there, which was not only 11 years of pretty much medical torture, but a whole life of many different forms of abuse. And when I came home to my body, it was an accident um, in a session with a therapist who was not trauma informed, who could feel emotion in my body, a body work worker. And so because he felt emotion in my body, he literally plunged his hands into my stomach. And so when he did that, thinking, oh, I'm just going to get it out, I'm going to fix her, um, I was re regressed to a memory of being severely physically abused as a child. Mm. And I was so shocked and scared and I didn't share it with him in the session because it clearly wasn't safe to. And this kind of stuff happens on treatment tables all over the world. Mm. And so when the session, I just lay down and let him, right, let him re-traumatize me because I didn't know any different. I immobilized. And so then when I left, I ran out onto Orchard Road, which is a really busy road in Singapore. It's very bustly and there's lights and sound. And I just broke down and I was hysterical. And I went home and for two weeks this memory was replaying inside my head and I started getting all these weird physical symptoms um and I'd written to him about it and he didn't really know what to do it was just like whoops um mm. and but then the physical symptoms started to rise and the memories were getting more and more and then a little voice spoke to me you know my wise self or my conscious healing self said you need to go in and feel this now and you mm. need to let it out and so that's when this really intense release process began for me. And it was just intuitive. It was at home alone. And I spent four months feeling into different sensations in my body, connecting to the origin trauma of the sensation and the emotion and letting it out. And at the same time, I made a pretty radical decision to stop all medication. So I was on 42 meds a day at the time, and I was still returning to Australia for medical treatment every month. And I just went, no, again, that boundary, that non-acceptance, I'm done. I'm going to do it my way now. 11 years of that is enough. And so I spent four months, about four hours a day, feeling into my body and crying and heaving and shaking and journaling, and then just curling up in a ball and dissociating and recovering. And it was so non-trauma informed and so traumatic, mm. but that process became a key 
for how I have now learned to go and help others and develop a framework that is far more gentle and far more directed and far more trauma-informed. Mm. And after those four months of releasing and processing very early memories, uh, all of my physical symptoms went away. Uh, and and all of a sudden, there was a line out of the door saying of people saying, Natalia, can you help me? And I thought, well... I think I better study. And so that's when I began training both as a hypnotherapist and a craniosacral therapist. And then the the journey as a practitioner began, but the journey as a human, as a woman, as a survivor continued and it still continues. But after the physical piece for me and the emotional piece came the relational piece, mm-hmm. which I believe is the biggest, biggest piece. And now whenever I'm supporting others, that is the piece that we actually lean into first. The relational piece. Yeah. I mean, mm. my whole, all of my work. Um, so I work as a, a, a trainer for therapists and I also work with leadership training. It is all about harnessing the power of relationship for healing. Mm. It is the crucible. It is the alchemy. The modalities are secondary. Wow. Wow. Incredible. What a story. Thank you for sharing. Thanks for asking. I want to, um, make sure that we put a footnote on because you've said that you stopped your 42 medications in one moment and my my sort of responsible podcast host hat just came on and was like we're not suggesting those that are on multiple medications stop immediately absolutely not i did things in a really radical way uh, that is against all medical advice, and I right. do not advise that for anybody else. Yeah, but it was, but it was what you had to do. Yeah. yeah, amazing, and I can really feel that sense of you know the word that really pops up for me is agency, and that you um, yeah, that you you suddenly took agency of your experience, and um, yeah, how potent, how powerful. It's been an epic journey. Yeah. (laughs) And even since when I first met you like five years ago, there's been so much processing, so much healing, so much change. Like I'm a different woman to the woman that stood in your craniosacral room five years ago. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible evolution and change and, yeah, growing. And And now I can sort of come back to where we began, which is peace and power. And just kind of really sitting with that. I mean, to me, these are two images or two, uh, two, two felt sense concepts or something like that, that, that feel like a really nice way to begin and to end and to sort of like come into that. And, um, and maybe people can, people listening can feel that. I know I could really feel some of the things that you dropped in here that feel like really d- deeply embodied wisdom. And, um, and thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you for having me. I loved talking with you. Amazing. Is there a way for people listening that they can find you or find out more or learn about your work? Uh, yes. So you can go to my website, nataliarachel.com. I'm also really active on LinkedIn and Instagram. Awesome. And there is the book. And I'll leave a link to the book in the in the show notes as well. So if you're coming to the end and you're like, I want to I want to read that book, go in and and get it. I just I got it on Kindle, and um, I'm already enjoying it immensely. Just in the first few chapters. All right, Natalia, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Chris. 
Thank you for listening to On The Souls Terms podcast. Find me online at onthesoulsterms.com or on Instagram at onthesoulsterms. The music behind me is from Malia Kuehr. Find her on Spotify, Malia, C-O-E-U-R. I look forward to seeing you next time.